0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. On Thursday, December 7th, the Jewish world lost one of the great leaders and scholars of our generation, Rabbi Dr. David Ellenson, past president and chancellor of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. It is hard to express the heartbreak and sadness I feel for the loss of my teacher, my rabbi, my mentor, my role model, and my inspiration. A few years after ordination at a meeting we both attended, I went over to him to say hello. Hi, Dr. Ellenson, I said. Dan, he said, we're colleagues now. You can call me David. I thought about that for a moment and said, Thanks very much. That's so kind, Dr. Ellinson. David was so much more than a teacher to me. I arrived at HUC in Los Angeles in the fall of 1992. Jewish thought was the passion that drove me to the study of the rabbinate, and I was very excited to meet this teacher about whom I had heard so much. He welcomed me and nurtured my interest and curiosity. He took the time to get to know me personally, and I enjoyed many hours in conversation with him. David was an absolutely brilliant teacher. I don't remember him ever bringing a single note to class. He knew his subject so well it just flowed out of him. But more than the ideas of the Jewish thinkers he taught, it was David's humanity that really poured from his soul. One year during Sukkot, a tragedy befell a member of Los Angeles's well-known library minion, where many of us would pray on Saturday mornings. A family had lost a small child in a drowning accident. And instead of plowing ahead with the scheduled lesson on Maimonides, David instead used that class to talk about what it would mean to a rabbi or to a community to bury a child. And in the next lesson, he still did not return to the syllabus, but instead he used that lesson to unpack the funeral and to help us understand how the rabbi who led the service helped the community to move through the agony of the tragedy toward a process of healing. His humanity and his tears helped him and us to understand that there were bigger things at stake in that moment than medieval Jewish thought. David would come to class, put his Diet Coke on the table, and begin to lecture, and I hung on every word. As so many experienced in their time in his classroom, he would often be overcome with emotion as he told the story of Leo Beck and his trials and the Holocaust. I took as many classes with him as I could, and I was thrilled when he invited me to be a research assistant with him, and I spent a summer helping him pull an index together for one of his books. David rose from being a noted Los Angeles-based scholar to a world-renowned leader of our beloved Hebrew Union College and the reform movement, and yet he never lost his warmth, his kindness, his Menschlichkeit. He made you feel like you were the most important person in the world to him. I was so blessed for all the efforts he made to be there for me in my career, coming to celebrate my installation, serving as scholar in residence, and all the hours he spent offering me his sage wisdom and advice. To say I loved him barely captures my admiration for him. He was my role model. I wanted to be like him in every way, and I will miss him terribly. Just last spring, David agreed to join me for the concluding episode of our first season of Essential Questions, and I wanted to share it again with you as a way of capturing the essence and honoring the memory of this great teacher. I was glad to listen to it again this past week. I hope you will as well. And now my conversation with Rabbi Ellinson and that essential question, do I really need to believe in God? Tell us a little bit about growing up in Virginia and how your experiences formed your own Judaic sense and that led you not just to the rabbinate, but ultimately to study and teach Jewish thought.
1: Okay, thanks very much. My grandparents on my father's side, they immigrated from Eastern Europe to uh, Newport News, Virginia. What was interesting about Newport News, and to some degree was atypical for the South, is that the first Jews to settle on the Virginia Peninsula were Eastern European, not German Jews. As a result, an Orthodox synagogue was established there, and years later, a conservative synagogue. The Reform Synagogue didn't begin until the late 1950s. It was uh, actually the last one to be erected. There were about 700 Jewish families in New News. All of them knew one another, but uh, the synagogues were, as it were, divided. I bring all this up because, on the one hand, I grew up in a South in the 1950s and 60s that was marked by racial segregation and the fight for integration during those years. And I have vivid memories of that, both the segregation and the fights for integration. My father and mother were quite liberal. I remember once my father drove me to Emporia, Virginia. I was about 12, 13 years old, and he simply said as we left our home, I want to show you today, David, what evil is. And we actually went to a white supremacy rally. My father said nothing else but The memory of that experience vividly remains in my mind, and I think it infused a degree of liberalism in me. In fact, I know it did during those years. At the same time, our family belonged to a synagogue that was very, very observant, and I grew up with a very traditional understanding of Orthodox Judaism. I believed quite literally that the Torah came from God to Moses at Mount Sinai, both written and oral. Our home was fairly observant. Certainly the holidays, Sabbaths, were at the very center of our existence. As a boy, I learned all kinds of davening skills in Orthodox liturgies, and those remain with me today. They proved very valuable to me as a scholar of modern Jewish liturgy, which is one of the areas that I write in, because I really knew almost every traditional, Ashkenazic service, at least service according to Ashkenazic Nisach, literally by heart and also how to daven them. I suppose I could pass the first year of the cantorial program in our School of Sacred Music. However, we lived in a world that was bifurcated in many ways. And when I went to college and began to study, interestingly, religion, I began to question the dogma that All of the Torah literally came from Moses at Mount Sinai. Took a course at William and Mary when I was a senior. Interestingly, in contemporary Christian thought, where we read Kierkegaard and others, Tillich, and it interested me. It was actually the most fascinating program of study I had ever undertaken, and I thought, well, Jews must have written something like this as well. I did not yet know Heschel Soloveitchik. I knew Buber. Interestingly, he was included in that class, but I was desirous of learning more. And uh, after graduation, I went to the University of Virginia, where I was blessed to study with a man, Alan Lutofsky, who was professor of Jewish studies, and also with a man named David Little, who was a sociologist of religion. And it was through them that I gained ever more, for me, fascinating insights into the world of spirituality and attempting to understand what the nature of religious tradition was in the modern world world, it was at that juncture that I decided that I would uh, also study for the rabbinic. So I entered HUC four years after uh, I had graduated college and after completing my MA at UVA.
0: If I can ask you, you know, at that time you had grown up in this real traditional world. As you said, you had been raised and had earlier embraced a really traditional theology. And then something switched, right where you started to say i'm not sure that's really what i believe anymore so can you talk a little bit about like what that meant for you and how that worked with you and your family I can only imagine the conversations that you might have had about your emerging belief as it sort of diverged, perhaps, from what you were raised with.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I, I ho- thank you for focusing me in that way. By the time I was certainly twenty, twenty-one, 21, etc., I began to have doubts that all of these rituals came directly from, as it were, the mouth of God. I should say that I had a brother and sister. My brother and I played active roles in the liturgical life of our synagogue, and we were honored a great deal for that. I bring this up because my sister, with whom I have a very, very close relationship, she had gone on to MIT and then graduate school in mathematics at Harvard. She was not allowed to participate in any of these uh, functions in the way that my brother and I were. And when I was 16, 17, and 18, I was not able to really articulate what it was that was problematic about about it. But I did intuitively understand that for me, from a moral perspective, it was just unacceptable that Judy, my sister, could not participate in the way that... My brother and I could, similarly, my mother, who had gone to Hebrew college in Boston and was certainly very, very learned hebraically and very active, as I said, in our federation and in DASA, the only place that her voice could not be lifted up as a leader was in the synagogue. I wasn't able then to say that, of course, in patriarchal religious traditions, positions of public Power, status, and authority are legislated for men, and I'll try to put this nicely, uh, positions of domestic honor (laughs) are reserved exclusively for women. But what that meant to me as I began to study uh, religion in a college, in a university, was that it was clear to me that uh, this was a result of patriarchy and not the result of of a divine command. As a result, for me, it meant that classical rabbinic leafs that I had been raised with, for example, a catechism I'll call it in quotation marks, which states, "Rashi calls Sarich la Daat, Chakol Torah Kula, Ben Ben Shalom Bahar Sinai, We would recite this before reading certain texts and it means the very first thing that you need to know is that all of the Torah written or oral was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. It is impossible to change even a single jot or tittle, neither to be lenient nor to be stringent. And that just struck me as not being true. It came, I came to understand that religion was a human effort to attempt to understand God's word and that it meant, therefore, that it was possible that there could be uh, error in it. That's what happens,
0: I think, to so many people is that they're taught certain understandings of what religion is or what God is and then there comes a point where that rubs up against what I might suggest is intuitive truth which is the truth that sort of either lives within your own sense of rationality or in your kishkes where when you look at that you say yeah that's not real that's not true and then you have this internal conflict, which is, well, is what has been taught for thousands of years and what has been inculcated in me since I was little true, or is my intuitive sense true? And then if that intuitive sense is true, and those other things are therefore false, is the whole smash false? And I think that what happens in our world is that people tend to throw out the entire enterprise of religion because this intuitive truth sort of puts a crack in what was suggested in whatever is given to you in your youth.
1: No, I think it's a good way to put it. By the way, the parallel that I would draw is that just as a little boy I knew that segregation was inherently morally flawed, morally wrong. In other words, why is it that people of color could not sit on the bus in the same place that, in quotes, white people could? Or why did there have to be separate water fountains, separate seating in restaurants, et cetera? Similarly, the whole issue with my sister, I knew that it was, as it were, morally wrong. And that, therefore, came to me as a sort of revelation, and it led me ultimately to Hebrew Union College. I mean, I had little experience with Reform. One of my uncles did belong to the Reform Temple in Newport News, and I was very, very close to this uncle, aunt, and their daughter, who was like a sister to me. But except for going into uh, that synagogue On one or two occasions, I had virtually no encounters with Reformed Judaism, but I did come to the college for that reason. It was hard for me initially to accommodate myself, to acclimate myself to what I would call the aesthetic of reform, which was so different than the aesthetic of an Orthodox shul or synagogue. But soon I did, and frankly, I loved my years at Hebrew Union College, and the impact of Eugene Borowitz upon me was simply immense. I cannot exaggerate it. When I was in Dr. Borowitz's class, and I'm certain you may remember studying with him as well, when he once said, well, the problem of Judaism in our time is how is it that you reconcile modernity, what it is we learn from the larger world in which we live, and tradition, uh, that's the central focus of all of the Jewish thinkers who will be looking at. This semester. In other words, the process begun with Moses Mendelssohn remains alive today. What was interesting for me is that some friends of mine, of course, remained Orthodox. Others rejected, as it were, Judaism altogether. But I found myself entering a liberal Jewish precincts, by liberal, I don't mean just politically liberal, but I mean spiritually liberal, and began to read people, honestly, like Soloveitch, Heschel, Borowitz, and others, all of whom uh, had a tremendous, tremendous impact
0: upon me. So for those of us who weren't blessed to be in your class, who may not be as conversant with those individual names or thinkers... As you began to reconstruct a theology for yourself, what were the ideas that those individual thinkers—Borowitz, Soloveitchik, Heschel, Buber, Rosenzweig—who were those people, and what were they doing, and what were they teaching that captured you? What were the different pieces that you wove together to create your own theology.
1: Well, all of them had an impact upon me, but I'm going to single out, and I'm glad you mentioned them, Buber and Rosenzweig. Martin Buber, of course, is a name that is probably more well-known to the general culture than that of the other Jewish thinkers who I mentioned. But Buber and Rosenzweig together had a tremendous impact upon me. Martin Buber, of course, is famed as the philosopher of dialogue of an I-Vow kind of theology. Buber himself, while not raised in in an observant background, was raised with a great deal of Jewish tradition and knowledge. But Buber essentially said that what it is that marks us as human beings is that we live in relationship, and that there are two modes of relationship. One mode of relationship, of course, quoted quite often, is an I-it- mode of relationship. An I-IT mode of relationship, according to Buber, is marked by consciousness, and in addition there is usually an end or a purpose in which one engages in that relationship. He says that most of our lives are led in an I-IT mode. There is nothing wrong with an I-IT mode. If Without it, life as we know it could not be led, but one has to understand that it is inherently on a very foundation level instrumental. And therefore, Buber points out that human beings also have the capacity for what he calls an I-thou relationship. An I-thou relationship is marked by spirit. It's marked by uh, immediacy. And in it, one encounters the other in the fullness of one's being. Without the realm of it, Buber says, life as we know it would not be possible. But Human beings who are condemned in quotation marks to live in the realm of it alone never can experience the fullness of what it means to be a human being and. It was this notion of i thou that impressed me. On the other hand, what I did not like about Buber from a Jewish perspective is that Buber, therefore, was a complete anti-nomian. I know that's a big word to use uh, for a popular broadcast, but that means he was opposed to nomos, to law. His position was the genuine religiosity emerged from an immediate encounter and that that could not be encapsulated, captured by uh, legal dictus. So, for example, if you're about to uh, eat a piece of bread, there may be a blessing that our tradition says should accompany that. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We thank you, God, for bringing forth bread from the earth. But Buber's point would be, well, what if you don't really feel spiritually uh, oriented at that kind of moment? In a sense, I think Buber was saying you cannot command love, and therefore Boober was inherently opposed to any form of organized religion and ritual life. In other words, what I learned from Buber is the importance of genuine religiosity, the immediacy of encounter. But simultaneously, uh, what I found lacking in Buber was an appreciation for institutional or organizational or ritual forms. Franz Rosenzweig had grown up in a rather wealthy home And ultimately, in 1912, after completing a doctorate on Hegelian thought, rather than become an academic or go into business, he had, as it were, a type of conversion ceremony or encounter uh, at an Orthodox synagogue in Berlin. He was on his way to converting to Christianity when he felt that he needed to understand a bit more about Judaism. And while we don't know precisely what occurred at that moment, he felt after he went to the synagogue and heard this sermon on a Kol Nidre that he did not have the need to uh, convert, and he spent the rest of his life as a uh, Jewish scholar. He learned Hebrew along with Buber, who was his very close colleague. They did a monumental translation of the Bible, and he wrote a book, The Star of Redemption. But he has a discussion with Buber about the whole nature of Halacha and Jewish law called The Builders Concerning the Law. It comes from a passage in rabbinic literature, don't say your children, but rather your builders. But the key point that Rosenzweig made that became important to me was that Rosenzweig agreed with Buber in the sense that you cannot command the spirit at any given moment. Rosenzweig felt that the mitzvot or the commandments, the halachot of Judaism, provided a framework in which spirituality could be experienced. Think of the people at your synagogue, at your temple, Dan. They're preparing their children for a bar about bat mitzvah. I think it's probably clear that most of the time that's spent with the parents saying to the child, study, you've got to work, planning uh, the simcha, the meal that's going to follow, the celebration. Most of that exists in the realm of I-it. And yet the moment comes when that child gets up on the bima and recites sukim uh, passages, verses from the Torah, and recites that blessing, and you stand there as a father, or a mother or two mothers, two fathers, and you realize the blessing of this child and the love that you have for that child. Or a Friday night comes. I mean, I have five children. I wish every Friday night looked like Fiddler on the Roof when Tevye does the blessing over the children and that may you be like Ruth and like Esther and that the angels are singing on high. When our kids were young, out of five of them, I can tell you two or three were always, in quotes, misbehaving or hitting one another. Four Friday nights would come, and I can tell you there was nothing magical, nothing I vow about it.
0: But then the fifth Friday night came, and it was magical. What I'm hearing you sort of describe, right, is—and it's so interesting to hear you tell this story because, for me, it's almost— identical. And in fact, I wrote my undergraduate thesis, I think I showed it to you one time, about Buber and Rosenstein. Yes,
1: well, I know of Colgate, right.
0: And uh, that same idea that, you know, there is something profoundly overwhelming in a spiritual encounter, and you know it when you experience it, that can happen between two people. But so often, it seems like Jewish tradition gets in the way of fomenting those kinds of experiences. But then if you you know from Rosenzweig is like if you do it enough, you may find that, you know, at one time the flywheel will catch. And I remember, you know, I'm we used to do the same thing with our kids. We try to have Shabbat dinner every week and it was not always glorious. <laughs> but what's so interesting is now that my kids are off and away, they call on Friday night, Daddy, give me my blessing and it doesn't matter where they are in the world, they'll call and ask for it because obviously something was getting through there. And so if I can, I want to just sort of look at this idea of what it means to build a theology. What does it mean to emerge and try to struggle? So in, a, in an essay that you wrote in our movements, machsor Mishkanah Nefesh, in the Rosh Hashanah volume. So for those who don't want to pay attention during Rosh Hashanah services, flip to the essays because there's some great <laughs> stuff to read there. You wrote this really interesting passage. You said, faith is never easy. The rabbis of the Talmud, exemplars of belief, frequently spoke of the hiddenness of God, hesterapanim, despite a desire for certainty, religious hesitancy and uncertainty are inescapable elements of human life. And even the most devout believer in God is often wracked by moments of doubt and despair. And so, if that's true of the devout, you wrote, it's all the more so for people like us who live their lives informed by this sense of rationality, who are living in this world where our intuitive sense of truth doesn't always line up with what we think religion teaches. And so, I'd like to explore that a little further. You know, so how do you cultivate a meaningful sense of faith and belief? in which threads of doubt are just constantly interwoven. How do I build a theology when I'm not even sure I know what God is? It's almost like I know it when I feel it, like those moments of encounter that Boober inspired you and I to sort of experience, uh, or experience. But, you know, how do you then build something where you can say, yes, I have a belief, and here's what it is, and it makes sense to me?
1: Boy, those are great questions. You know... I'm going to start by talking about what it is that I think Rosenzweig gives me in order to answer that question. Rosenzweig inherently agreed with Buber, as you've pointed out, that it is those moments of genuine I, thou encounter that mark genuine religiosity. And I think he would state, and I certainly would state, that it is not only within the framework of, let's say, organized religion that one can have those moments of experience. All you have to do is think about how you feel at times when you view nature and experience the grandeur of the world, the moment when a child is born and enters the world. But what tradition gives you, and this is, I guess, a building block Of the faith or the theology of which you're speaking, it it gives you a building block, a framework to help organize how it is that you are in the world so that it makes the possibility of experiencing those moments of I, Thou, Encounter greater. In other words, if you were to go on a uh, vacation with your loved one, It's probably better to be in beautiful, relaxed surroundings than in the middle of, I don't know, Times Square with people screaming, yelling, et cetera, at you at a given moment. In other words, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to have these kinds of moments of encounter, but it optimizes the chances for it. So it's in that sense that I think the rituals of our tradition are significant uh, aids in allowing us to experience these moments. But having said that, I think it becomes difficult for many of us as moderns, who approach the world to some degree in rational categories to affirm, at least in a literal sense, any number of teachings in our tradition. But this notion of having been moments of doubt along with moments of faith or encounter, I think marks the reality of life. Think of the relationship that you have with your spouse or with your loved one. Every moment is not a moment of eye vowness. I mean, your marriage may be the exception, Dan, but... Uh,
0: <laughs> no, definitely not. Just ask Amy, I she'll mean, tell most
1: you. Most of us have, you know, all of these ups and downs, as it were, but I think what we live in And this, I think, is important, or at least the way I understand it for myself, is that I live with a faith that even as I'm living in a realm of I, it, most of the time, that I have a hope, and maybe more than a hope, I have a confidence that I will yet again experience those moments of spirituality of encounter. In other words, when I wrote that particular essay from Mishkan HaNefesh, our movement's high holiday machzor, I wanted people who were sitting in the pews and perhaps not paying attention to the liturgy at a given moment, but looking at those essays, perusing them, to think, well... Some of the liturgy, I can't really affirm it literally. Uh, In other words, I need to perhaps understand it metaphorically. But that even if you are having a difficult time affirming some of the statements about God's kingship, etc., the notion that God is literally judging each of us uh, at a given moment. It doesn't mean that, as our teacher Larry Hoffman puts it, that it may not be metaphorically true that each of us has a conscience and that each of us wants to strive to be better, to do good. How is it that we can go about improving our lives with one another, with friends, with acquaintances? How can we conduct our business negotiations um, more honestly, more fairly? These are questions that mark all of us as human beings. And there are, of course, moments of doubt, moments of guilt that all of us feel. But then there are also moments of faith. I will say when I wrote those lines, I actually had in mind uh, the teachings of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, an Orthodox rabbi who was I think, one of the greatest teachers of Judaism in the 20th and 21st century. And Rabbi Greenberg, an Orthodox rabbi, ordained, I believe, at Torah of the Das Yeshiva, once wrote that living in a post-Holocaust world, how could we not be marked by moments, indeed perhaps hours of doubt, about the notion that, you know, God acts in the world in a uh, certain kind of way. And yet what we also have are glimpses of moments of faith where we see the greatness, goodness of life, and that we understand that as human beings we come to be partners with God in the work of creation. Rabbi David Hartman, another modern Orthodox rabbi, helped me along with Rabbi Borowitz and his teachings on covenant theology. Both of them talked about the fact that probably one of the most amazing teachings in Judaism is that human beings as frail and weak and prone to mistakes— I might in a theological vein even say to sin as we are. Nevertheless, our tradition views us as Shukathin, as partners with God in the act of creation. In other words, our tradition teaches us that this transcendent, all-powerful being, God, is, to quote Rabbi Heschel, nevertheless in search of us as persons. It Imposes a tremendous sense not only of responsibility but affirms that we as human beings have an innate dignity that despite all our shortcomings, God still sees us as worthy partners. And it seems to me that that metaphor, that image of God and humanity working together in a common task to improve to fix the world that we live in, to establish relationships that are marked by integrity, that all of this inspires me in my own theological thinking. I do not have a theology in which I could assert in a systematic fashion that A always flows from B. But to quote you in my Kishkas, I know that at moments I do encounter the holiness the holiness of what these encounters can mean, and that my religious tradition aids me in that, even as it doesn't provide a uh, systematic blueprint that A will always lead to B.
0: So if I can ask you, you know, and it's interesting to hear your your background and, and the experiences you had with your sister and your mother, and that sense that Judaism, as it looked at the role of women in community, was not reflective of what truth was. You wrote in your book Jewish Meaning in a World of Choice about the emergence of feminism in Judaism that led to the ordination of women in the rabbinate and all the influences that that epochal shift has inspired. And in thinking of the story of Ruth, you wrote the following. You said, all the abstract duties imposed upon us by our tradition are ultimately embedded in a story that speaks of our people's relationship with the divine, that partnership that you were referencing. And it reminds us that the rules imposed by that tradition are ultimately expressions of, and thus subservient to, a broader ideal of covenantal partnership that bestows ultimate meaning upon our actions and upon our attempts to forge community. So, taken more simply, I think what you're trying to suggest is that the mitzvot, the corpus of the rules that define our relationship to God, need to be reflective of what that relationship really is. And so, I'd like, if you would, tell me a little bit about what it means for you to be commanded by God. What does it mean to live in covenant with God? What does that relationship look like? <sighs> Boy.
1: Great questions. First, I do want to say in light of the statement you quoted of mine that here I would say that Mordecai Kaplan has taught me a great deal. Mordecai Kaplan talked about Judaism as an evolving religious civilization. And here I would say that what it means to me is that I live within that tradition. That tradition is what marks me as a person. My most fundamental affirmation as a human being is that I also enter the world as a Jew. In that sense, I suppose I feel, I'm going to put it in quotes because I'm going to have to think about it, but I'll say it first. I do feel commanded by God to be part of the people Israel, but I also feel that God not only places me as part of the people Israel, but as part of the people Israel, God commands me to create community. I'm not born into community as if by fate alone, but God calls me to the task of molding community, of being part of the world. Jewish tradition comforts me Because I know that it does evolve and change in time, and that as we gain greater insights, often of a moral nature, it allows us to transform our tradition, to quote Rachel Adler, we're allowed in our generation to engender Judaism. We know that Judaism was forged in a patriarchal culture, and I believe with the insights that we have, moral insights from our era, we're allowed to bring gender concerns into Judaism, which leads to the ordination of women, changes in our liturgy. What it means to me to be commanded by God is that I become part of a larger story. Judaism for me is, in a sense, a chain novel. Just as in a chain novel, there are earlier chapters and you have to know what those chapters are in order to write the subsequent chapter and to deal with the larger story in a way that marks it as continuous, and that grants the story integrity, you need to understand what those roots, what those earlier chapters were. God, as it were, for me, is experienced in the commandedness of being part of that story. But just because I'm part of that story, and I have those roots it doesn't obviate my responsibility for writing the present chapter in ways that will not only mark my community at present, but direct my community towards the future. You know, Martin Buber once wrote that a teacher is simply an individual who's walked further down a road than uh, their student. And what one hopes is that the student will take that learning and build upon it and, frankly, uh, surpass the teacher. And in many ways, for me, to be a Jew means that I'm commanded to be part of a Shaushela Ta I'm part of a chain of tradition. I'm a link in that chain, a chulia, a link in that chain. But simultaneously, I understand that I'm part of the past, I live in the present, and I my contributions will help to move people towards the future. I mean, frankly, I used to think of that every single day when you were in my class. I would think, what are these students going to do with what it is that I'm teaching them when they go out into the world? And I look at people like you, Dan, and I uh, have incredible pride in what you you do. This may be a weak sense of commandedness compared to the kind of black and white commandedness that i think i was taught as a child but it strikes me as as real and it does impose upon me a sense of obligation
0: and i think that the idea of the ultimate sense of commandedness of trying to glean as much understanding wisdom uh, truth as you can through your life experience and through just being open to what the Holy has to teach you, and to pass that on to such a degree that your 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 kids or your grandkids or your students will sort of rise above that and go forward to write that new chapter, or as the psalmist says, to sing yes. a new song, is, is, is very, very powerful. As always, Dr. Ellenson, it is uh, an incredible treat to get to learn from you and to be with you, not just your erudition and your scholarship, but your humanity. And I just treasure the gifts that you've given us today and your friendship. Thank you so, so much for being with us today. This season of the Essential Questions podcast has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. I am so grateful to our amazing production team who have guided and helped along the way. Jason Reiser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Elisa List. You can find previous episodes of this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboca.org. We hope that you will consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and spread the word to your friends about how much you've enjoyed the podcast. And we want to hear your essential questions, so email us at eq at tbeboka.org. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.